0: What a great experience, like um, buying half the house for double the money. That's, that's fun. That's great. But uh, we came here uh, because I have taken a position at Deer Creek Church in Littleton, Colorado. But, the, uh, but I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here with you all this morning because my job at Deer Creek, that pastoral staff position, Um, came through this church, the table, actually. It was a few years ago that there was an assistant pastor uh, position open, and so I interviewed uh, for it, had quite a few conversations, got to know Brad, and in God's good providence, I was not the right fit. Bryce was. But in, in part of that interview process, I remember a key conversation with Brad, like, okay, so Brad, here's what I'm interested in. Interested in church planning, but I'm also interested in this and this, and perhaps like, you need to talk to the guys at Deer Creek Church in Littleton. And so sure enough, I did. After a period of time, uh, they hired me, so it's great. So I'm so grateful to be here. Having said all that, grateful for Brad directing me in that way, and grateful for this church. I've watched you from a distance, like from Lawrence, Kansas, um, for, some, uh, for some time, so it's, uh, it's a great uh, opportunity for me to be here this morning with you all. And with that, um, as we come to this Psalm 37, which uh, is a long song, or a psalm, uh, fully, fully agree. You all did great. Um, it's never a bad thing to, to read large portions of the word, but this is one of the longer psalms. But as we come to Psalm 37 this morning, here's the question. Why did God give us this psalm? It's always good to ask the question, why did God see fit to give us this psalm? Because the psalms are not merely or just for private prayer reflections, right? They're good for our individual devotional life. But we have the psalms, God has given us the psalms, uh, he's given them to the people of God because we need them together. They, uh, they help us express our hearts to the Lord, but they also shape our understanding of god as well and so with that psalm 37 is a psalm of david and what's interesting if you caught this in verse 25 he says i have been young but now i'm old okay so this is david as an older man in a sense giving perspective right and just um just a few weeks ago my wife tiffany was in her daily uh read through the bible plan it was Psalm 37, and she, read, she was reading through, and she read Psalm 37, and she, uh, she remarked to me, she's like, wow, this, this psalm really puts life in perspective, and this was a couple of weeks before I was asked to preach, so when I was asked to preach, I know you're in a psalm series, um, I had preached on Psalm 37, my distant past, and so I thought, I, yeah, that, the reality of how good this is to be reminded of perspective, of what life is really about, so I opted To preach. So here we go. Let's dig in. In Psalm 37, um, David is looking back in God's faithfulness, but in a way that um, leads to wisdom and a right response from God's people. And he begins, if you caught this, he begins, Fret not yourself. Okay? And then he goes on in verses seven, uh, I believe it's seven and eight, yes, to say again, Two more times, fret not yourself, fret not yourself. Now, I don't know about you, fret not yourself has never, ever been in my vocabulary. I've never, I definitely not never, or definitely not fret not yourself. I don't even know if I've ever really used the word fret, right? I don't know about you, if it's in your vocabulary, but it's actually a great word because it literally means do not get heated up this idea of fret is whether it's angry or annoyed or worried, anxiety, whatever word, uh, that fret covers quite a few, uh, a range of meaning there. And so we may not say fret, maybe we would be more prone to say chill, right? And, and we, could, uh, we could attribute the word, look, fun fact, you know, chill comes from Um, The Sugarhill Gang, 1979, in their song Rapper's Delight used chill. That was 79. And then 80s, can anybody say from the 80s how chill evolved? Take a chill pill, right? And so that has evolved to where now we just say chill or chill out, whatever it may be. So essentially, that's the idea. What David is doing at this psalm is he's saying, okay, from his perspective, old man, Older man, looking back at the faithfulness of God, he's saying, We can fret not or we can chill based on God's goodness. He says, Fret not because of evildoers, be not envious of wrongdoers. Okay. But the truth of the matter is, if we're honest, we are always prone to fret and to lose perspective. And the reason is because we live in a sinful, fallen world where there is much to produce anger or anxiety, worry, fear, you name it. Let me just name a few words, broad categories, like the economy, okay? Subheading under economy would be like gas prices currently, right? And then other big words that make it in the news all the time cause us to fret, virus, Politics, war, violence, you could go on and name, there's so much to fret. And with that, um, to be more specific of this psalm, David is saying, life doesn't always seem fair, especially when wrongdoers, evildoers seem to prosper in God's world. It doesn't seem fair when they're alive and well, while God's people are suffering and so throughout this psalm, what we find is there's this contrast. On one hand, there's what, uh, what David refers to as the wicked, or we'll call them evildoers or wrongdoers. And there's a contrast between them and righteous. That word righteous, the righteous, shows up nine times in this psalm. And other words for righteous include the upright, the blameless, those blessed by the Lord, the saints, a person of peace. And what David talks about throughout this psalm is that the wicked are plotting against God's people, seeking to lead to harm, want to slay them, uses strong words. Pretty extreme, right? Not for David. This was his reality, as he was the king over Israel, was seeking to lead Israel as a godly nation, had godless nations coming against him, literally to kill him. That may not be our experience. Probably not. My guess is you didn't wake up this morning on the way to church and look to your right and left to make sure somebody wasn't going to kill you. It's probably not our reality, but we live in a sinful, fallen world, and because of that, there is evil, and the Scriptures remind us, there's a promise, that if we follow Christ, we will be persecuted. It's a promise from the scripture. We may experience that in various ways, and the church experiences that in different ways. I mean, throughout the world, some of our Christian churches are being incredibly persecuted. That may not be our reality. Our suffering may be a bit more subtle, but whatever the experiences are, and having said that, I'm um, not sure where you are coming in this morning. It's been said we're either always in a crisis coming out of a crisis or going into a crisis, right? So suffering, um, suffering is just part of life. And what David says is, fret not the evil. And he's going to explain why we are not to fret evil. But before that, the second part of that verse one, which by the way, uh, if you catch this, um, I'm going to go through and within a matter of minutes, I'll be in verse two and then some more minutes, I'll be in verse three and you may freak out thinking I'm going to take all day, but I'm mostly going to concentrate on verses one through 11. So I will not delay the food truck all that much. Uh, yeah. So um, before David or David talks about fret not, but then he also says this in verse one says, be not envious of wrongdoers. So, so with evil in, in the world, do not be angry and consumed, but also don't be envious. And the question is, what makes you envy? What drives you to envy? Right now, if nothing's coming to your mind, let me prompt you. I just quick, uh, I Googled really quickly envy for a definition this morning and A feeling of discontent or resentful longing aroused by someone else's possessions, qualities, or luck, is what this definition said. So with that, I'll tell you what I have been envying lately. Um, Not only did I buy a house that was way too expensive, um, and I couldn't help it, um, but it also needs uh, new carpet, or actually, no, it had old carpet. Nasty carpet, so we don't want carpet. So hardwood floors and everything. And here's my envy all week it's been this. If I just made enough money, I could hire somebody to do this. But it's that there's always a trigger for all of us, right, of something that we envy in life. And the question is um, what causes us to envy? Okay, the other way we can, uh, with envy, um, Maybe something we may envy at times are sins. We envy particular sins because if we know the scriptures, if we're seeking to follow the Lord, we know right from wrong, right? But so often sin is enticing. Think about Jesus and his word to his disciples. He warned them about the thorns that could choke up and kill, kill out the faith. What did he refer to? For to the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the pleasures of life. Why did Jesus warn about these? Because they're enticing. And we often want what the world has and delights in. We often, if I can use the biblical words of faith, hope, and love, we often fall into putting our faith, our hope, our love into some of the things of the world. We want more money, right? We want more prestige, right? We want, um, you name it, whatever might come to your mind. We want the good life. But who gets to find the good life? Does the world or does God? Again, we need the perspective of Psalm 37 that actually talks about what the good life is. And he says, goes on, David says, don't fret evildoers, don't envy wrongdoers. And the reason is that's the danger of what anger, fretting, and envy leads to. It leads to doubt. Is God holding out on me? Is God really good? Is God really going to pull through? Is God even real right now? And if he is, is he personal? Does he give a rip about my life and my circumstances right now? Again, we need Psalm 37 because what it points us to is the ultimate destiny of both the wicked and the righteous. And so with that, David gives us the reality of the ultimate outcome of the wicked. Now, I'll just use verse 2 in many ways, or actually verse 2 and then 8 and 9, sums up much of this Psalm about the wicked. And when, when David uses wicked, what he's thinking in terms of, or when the Bible says wicked... It is those that have rejected God, rejected God's good word, rejected God's son, Jesus, right seeking to go their own way contrary to God's will and heart. Okay, so with that, what is the future, the ultimate outcome for the wicked? Verse 2 says they will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. And then verses 8 and 9 uses this language they are cut off now that's repeated three other times so four times throughout this uh, speaks of the wicked being cut off and this idea is removed the wicked will eventually be removed from the people of God and what David is very clear to say is because of the ultimate outcome for the wicked says this in verse 8 and 9 refrain from anger and forsake wrath in other words Leave it to God. Leave it to God. Romans 12 is an echo of this. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So here's what David is saying, and then it's echoed in the New Testament by Paul. We will suffer, and rather than taking vengeance, anger, into our own hands, we leave it to God. We leave it to God. Then this, as far as envy, Proverbs 24 and Proverbs 23 speak of this connection with um, fret and envy. Literally, 24, uh, or Proverbs 24, 19, 20. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of the wicked, for the evil man has no future the lamp of the wicked would put out. And then Proverbs 23. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. See, the perspective of the scriptures is that our hearts should not be inclined towards fretting especially about the evils in the world that come against us, or envy, desiring the evil of the world. That's not where our heart's desire should be. It should be the fear of the Lord, as this puts it, continuing in that all the day. And this should give us a peace, a sense of peace and urgency. First, a sense of peace. Let me say it this way, um, or, or illustrate it this way. In my office uh, at work, well, I don't actually start my job till July 1st. So in my car right now is a painting that will eventually, came out of my office and will go in my office, is a painting. And this painting, I keep it on the wall of my office to remind me and as a conversation piece. And it's this. It's a picture of four trees. There are four frames. The first one, this frame says life. It shows, it shows this beautiful tree, Um, there's birds, uh, and these birds are songbirds that sing the glory of God. And there's this apple in this frame, untouched apple. And then you slide over the second tree. It's dead, it's withered, it's gray, it's gloomy, it's dark, it's depressing. And what you see are two birds, two ravens, right? And it's just a stark contrast. Then the third frame, you see a beautiful tree again with a cross in the middle, see butterflies floating around and an egg above it. That all represents new life. So this is the biblical storyline of good creation, of fall, of God's redemption through Christ. In this last frame, the tree is so big it doesn't fit on the picture. It's just as if the artist said, I give up, I can't do it justice. There's glorious fruit, glorious beautiful birds, bright. And it is this idea of this new heavens and new earth. And so I bring that up to say what's interesting in the second picture, these two birds, one is looking back. So this is the second frame. One is looking, if you're facing this way, one is looking back at creation. And the other bird is looking forward at the last frame, the consummation, because these birds are doing what we are to do as God's people we're to look back at the Garden of Eden and recognize how good and gracious God was at the kind of world he created for us, the relationship he called us into. But more than that, now we look forward. We look forward to the end of all things, the new heavens, the new earth, when Jesus returns and eradicates evil out of the world. So this is to be our perspective. This is why David, as an older man, can say, fret not evil, and his point is, because it won't be here forever. But this also should give us a sense of urgency, knowing that the gospel needs to continue to go forth, knowing that our loved ones who do not know the Lord, we need to continue to pray, seek opportunities to proclaim the gospel, because there is an ultimate ending to the world. And there are destinies at stake for the righteous as well as the wicked. As far as the outcome of the righteous, let's talk about the contrast real quick. So the, uh, in contrast to the outcome of the wicked who will be cut off, in other words, removed from the people of God, there's this theme that runs through this psalm about the outcome of the righteous, and it's, uh, we could summarize it by saying, they will inherit the land. That's over and over in this psalm, in at least five different places, the righteous will inherit the land. So what's that a reference to? So if we go back to the Old Testament, if we think about the promise to Abraham that God would make him into a large nation, the Israelites, and would bless them. Part of that blessing would be that they would inherit the promised land. And what was the promised land to God's people? It was a place of rest. It was a place of peace. I just realized something. I've had students uh, before tell me that when I stand on the stage, they get nervous because they think I'm going to fall off. So I'm going to try to remember (laughs) to back a step back. Okay. Anybody getting anxious as you watch me on this? Okay. All right totally lost my place. I was talking about the promised land. Um, Yes, so the promised land, if we think about this land of Canaan, it was a place where God would dwell with his people, safe, they'd be secure, they'd have rest. But that pointed to an ultimate glorious, more glorious future, this promised land of the new heavens and the new earth, a place where God would dwell with his people, perfect rest, perfect peace, perfect glory, no fretting whatsoever, no envy, nothing. So in light of these two outcomes, that um, the wicked will be cut off, but for the righteous, there is this perfect land that's prepared for us. The question of the psalm is, so how do we live in light of that? How do we live in light? And here it is, verse 3. It says, trust in the Lord and do good. Trust. Trust in the Lord. That's the starting place for our faith, right? Our starting place is trusting in Christ. But we never graduate past that. We always have to continue to trust the Lord. And how can we trust God? What allows us to trust? Here's a word that jumps out of the Bible at me. Um, It's the word covenant. I don't know if you've read the scriptures, ever come across the word covenant. It's throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. If I can say covenant is God's promise, and I'd say it this way, God's promise on steroids, that there's this refrain in the scriptures that's referred to as the covenant formula. I will be your God, and you shall be my people. In other words, what God is telling his people is, I will be good to you, I will be faithful, I will be your God, I'll secure you call you to be faithful to me how do we trust god did he make good on that promise he sent his own son to took on, to take on flesh in the incarnation and then what did jesus do suffered for us died for us but the story didn't stop there rose from the grave okay and then ascended to the right hand of the father what does the scripture say that he's doing there ruling and reigning interceding, meaning defending, praying for his people and the promise that he'll return again. In other words, God has fully committed himself to his people. So how can we trust? Knowing that God has committed himself to us first should cause our hearts desire to commit ourselves to God. Trust and then it says and do good. And over and over at least nine times in this psalm, the righteous are Is mentioned this word righteous and if I can pull a definition from um, it's actually Amy Sherman who is quoting Tim Keller in a book called Kingdom Callings Um, they're the people uh, the righteous are the people and and there's a particular word uh, Hebrew Sadakim okay Uh, they follow God's heart and ways and want everything they have as gifts from God to be stewarded for his purposes So think about our time, think about our talents, think about our treasures. The righteous are ones that have a different orientation in the world with our time, our talents, our treasures. We see this as opportunities to steward this for God's glory and for others' good. Verse 21 talks about the righteous is generous. 25 uh, talks about ever lending generously. Verse 16, it's talking about better is the little that the righteous have than the abundance of the wicked. So the question is, and I'm asking this question of me first in light of my desire to to pay somebody else to do my flooring. How are we doing at being generous and content? Generous and content. It's very difficult in this world. Because we want more and more and more. But can we be content with what we have and can we turn around with what we have and be generous? That is what God calls the righteous towards. And the motivation of our generosity is think about how generous God has been to us. Verse 4, we are delight. Rather than fret ourselves with envy, we are delight ourselves in the Lord. The steps of the man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way, verse 23. So this idea of delight. Just think about this. The non-Christian does not delight in the Lord. Non-Christian looks at God and thinks God and the scriptures are oppressive. But when we come into a relationship with Christ, everything should change. And we recognize that. That this judge of the whole world has become a personal father who delights in us. And we're called to delight in him. And the question is, do you delight in the Lord? Do you delight in the scriptures? And if I can be so bold to say, to the degree that we do not delight in the Lord, to that degree we actually do not know the Lord. Because to know the kind of God of the scriptures is to grow and our delight and verse 31 says the law of God is in his heart so how do we continue our delight or grow in it it's a commitment to reading the scriptures it's a commitment to involvement and connections at this church where we continue in the fellowship with each other of strengthening each other in the delight of the Lord and uh, there's a promise that he'll give you the desires of your heart. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Now, that can be abused. Um, I can think of an opportunity. I will just, uh, I'm going to pick on my son, Ty, who's here this morning. So when Ty was about three, we we're on, we we're driving back from vacation. We are, you know, we lived in Kansas, so my guess is we were driving back from Colorado. That was our typical, or, or, or the beach. Um, so we're driving back. I don't remember which vacation it was. All I remember, it was we got a late start. It was 2 in the morning. We're driving back. My four kids plus my wife, everybody's asleep. It's 2 in the morning. I'm driving, doing all right. But then uh, the silence breaks. At this point, Ty, as a three-year-old, had this great raspy voice. He's like, Dad, I want a donut. I'm like, uh, as a father... Who delights in my child, do I give him the desires of his heart? No. Wasn't the right time, wasn't the right desire, right? So when we think of God giving us the desires of our heart, that would mean as we grow in maturity and our hearts line up with the will of the Father. That's when we have the desires of our hearts. Verse 5 and 6. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him and He will act. He'll bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday, uh, noonday sun. This idea of commit is to cast. We're called to cast ourselves on the Lord, and that includes casting everything on Him, our anxieties, our fears. Maybe this maybe this. What did you walk in here with this morning? We're going to be in different places. Some may have uh, right now. You may be in a season of very little, very little fears or cares or anxiety, but not everyone in here. And it won't. And, and if you're you're you know, fairly carefree right now, you won't be <laughs> for very long. That's just not how the world works. We live in the real world. It's a fallen world. What do you do with your anxieties, your fears, what you face? Do you cast yourself on the Lord? Do you Give them to the Lord. What does this look like in our lives? It's so easy to fret. It's so much more difficult at times to discipline ourselves to go to God quickly and to wrestle through honestly with Him. The Scriptures promise that He will act. And how do we know that he will act on our behalf? Again, God is a covenant keeping God. He has promised that he will be faithful to us. God is never in a situation where he looks at our lives and says from heaven, Oops, I didn't see that one coming. What should I do now? It is never God's perspective right? But rather, even the things that are most difficult in our lives, God is orchestrating that for a good purpose in our lives. So this leads to this, verse 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. So consider the progression. Rather than fret, we are to trust in the Lord, delight ourselves in the Lord, commit our way to the Lord, says, and He will act. And then Therefore, because he will act, we can be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. What does it mean to be still before the Lord? Does that mean we put ourselves in a timeout chair? Yeah, no. To be still before the Lord is actually active. To be still before the Lord is to wait on him. There's this refrain in the book of Revelation that I love patient endurance. That's the call of the Christian patient endurance and at times in our patient endurance this is the call to prayer to pray and again as we look at our lives is this a habit that we are cultivating praying waiting patiently knowing that God will act so with all this in light of the reality Of all that we face, suffering, the trials, um, at times the frustrations of we're seeking to follow God and life is hard and we can watch others who have no desire to follow God and they seem to prosper. They're doing great. What do we do with all this? What do we do with all this? What are the promises that we have? Verse 18, and I just want to rifle through. um, Here's what it's like. If you ever, you know, as a kid, I remember, you know, you'd go swimming, and uh, if you're with your friends, you know, they splash water in your face, annoy you, drive you crazy. So I'm just going to splash some verses real quick, from Psalm 37 to finish up. So I'm going to try to w- w- rifle through this pretty quick. Verse 18, the Lord knows the day of the blameless. So the Lord knows. The Lord knows. The Lord always sees. There's this great promise. I remember at times watching my kids uh, you know, Tiffany would leave the house, four kids. She's like, hey, you know, can you watch him? Yeah, I'd watch him. I'll be admit, I snuck in a few naps, right? Not a good father move, but what's the promise of the scriptures? Psalm 121, God never slumbers nor sleeps. His watchful eye is always on us. And then the promise of 25 says, I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Verse 28, for the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. Verses 32 and 33. The Lord will not abandon the righteous to the wicked, essentially. So what we have in this psalm is God's love for his people. And it's a love that holds them until the very end until the very end and no matter what and so that love produces in us a real faith and a real hope a real hope when we're struggling real hope when we're wrestling with doubts a real hope as we come alongside others who are really struggling I like this quote of a theologian who says, the Savior who ordained your salvation before the foundation of the world, who sent his Son to live and die for you on the cross, who sent the Spirit to claim you as his child, will never let you go. The power of the cross is real. And then I want to end with this. Look at verses 39 and 40, the last two verses. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in a time of trouble and then this i'm going to read this and you fill in the blank the lord helps no actually don't fill in the blank in case you say it because i'll have to correct you and then you'll be embarrassed the lord helps not those who help themselves that's nowhere in the scriptures the lord helps them and delivers them he delivers them from the wicked and saves them because They take refuge in him. And here's what it boils down to. How is it possible to not really fret? How is it possible to not be angry all the time or given to envy all the time? What's the antidote? It is the love and the grace of God who has provided for us. And if we're wondering how can we trust, all we do is we look at the cross and this morning, as we approach the table, what we see at the, uh, at the communion table is the, uh, the body and the blood of Christ. That's what is represented. The bread and the wine are signs and seals of God's covenant of grace. Grace. And as we look here, what we see is God's faithfulness to Him, to us, His love, His grace, His body broken, His blood shed for us. And with this, on the night that He was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and after giving thanks, He gave this to His disciples. He said, Do this in remembrance. Of me my body given for you in the same way he took the cup and after giving thanks said this cup is the covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins do this in remembrance of me and the Apostle Paul adds as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and what are we proclaiming we're proclaiming We don't need to fret. He died for us. He came for us. And he will bring grace and love. He'll bring it all perfectly into fruition in the new heavens and the new earth and calls us to wait faithfully till that day. And let's pray for that. (laughs) Lord, we ask that you would meet us at this table in a way that strengthens our faith, grow us in the knowledge of, of your glorious grace, please give us a hope that would sustain us. Thank you for your love for us. I pray that you would strengthen us to love one another and love our enemies as well, that you would take this bread, this Jew set apart in such a way that you are. We know that you're with us and may you be glorified in Jesus name. Amen.